Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Hey, Alex. Uh, so, who is Bill Ramsey, our guest today? Bill Ramsey is a philosophy professor at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, he's also, you know, he's one of my neighbors. But he used to be a professor at Notre Dame. He's established roots at the Red River Gorge and so, sort of all around the country. And he's been climbing quite a long time. But he's now in his 60s and still climbing 514. So he is... Bill Ramsey is a physical specimen. <laughs> he is. Yeah, I don't, he, I don't even know how you define I mean, yeah. actually, I think one of the interesting things about Bill Ramsey is that by any quantifiable measure of strength, he is quite a bit stronger than me because like his fingers are way stronger. He can do more reps of things. He can do things with more weight. And I'm like, man, you have a full-time job as a philosophy professor and you're in your 60s and you're still just objectively stronger than me in pretty much every way. I'm like, how is that even, how is that a thing? <laughs> he's he's known he's known for doing max hangs and like you know basically finger training in the house before he goes to the crag and then doing a hard session at the crag where he projects some 514 that he's working on and then going to the bouldering gym afterward to to sort of cool down and make sure he doesn't lose any power and you're and you're like man you're a 60 year old man like can you do three sessions a day like i don't even want to do that <laughs> It's pretty impressive. I mean, they are literally legendary. I mean, the Vegas community people all make jokes about Bill's training routines. I think the reason that Bill's training routine is so over the top is because he's been doing it since the 1980s. Or, or you know, he's been climbing and, and training at a high level for, you know, more than 30 years. And there have been so many, you know, different sort of training fads and modalities and things that have gone in and out of fashion. And he's basically just collected all of them over the years where he's like, well, that's a good exercise. I'll just add that to the mix and I'll add that one to the mix. And so now he does these like 12 hour training sessions because he just does so many different things. He's like doing all these things all day long. And you're kind of like, Bill, if you're adding more training modalities, you, you maybe should drop a few along the way as well, you know, so you can't just keep adding more. I really liked his, um, the pain box or whatever. Yeah, the pain box. I think about that all the time. It's like this really succinct way of, of thinking about not just training, but like a lot of different things. No, all of life. Yeah, you're yeah. always balancing the pain of sucking versus the pain of working hard and, and not sucking. And you're kind of like, well, <laughs> it's like, would I rather suffer the pain of sucking or suffer the pain of not sucking? Doing the work required to not suck. Yeah. I know the, I think about the pain box all the time. Okay, so today we dive in. And yes, we talk about the pain of not sucking. But Bill wanted to chat about strength versus technique and what he sees as a bias or maybe an overemphasis on strength, and why in general as a sport we seem to hold one in much higher regard even when they can both produce similar results. We're joined by producer Lauren Delaney Miller and executive producer Lizzie Hendricks. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. Can you just tell us uh, your name, where you're from? Just give us your your brief bio. Yeah, uh, my name is Bill Ramsey. Um, I've been climbing for I think about 45 years. Um, 
<laughs> started climbing in Central Oregon. Um, I'm a philosophy professor here at UNLV in Las Vegas and still climbing and still doing philosophy. Yeah, actually, just so we have it, how old are you right now and how hard do you climb? 62. And I just did that thing. Well, yours are downrating it, but it's probably, I think it's 514 even the way I did it. I did it basically the way, I think I used one less knee bar than you used actually. <laughs> Oh, you're just not as crafty as I am. I know, I know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I think I still call it 14A. Yeah, okay, so Didn't I'll take that. I'll take so, that. Yeah. yeah, it's good to join the 514 over 60 club. <laughs> how many, how, how deep is that club? Uh, probably in Europe, there's just thousands of people because it seems like people's grandparents <laughs> are all climbing 514 over there. But uh, in America, I know Chuck O'Dead, I think Steve Hong probably, there's probably a few, but it's probably not a, it's not a huge group. I think uh, the American Alpine Club should do a little like uh, a little table for you guys at, at one of the years <laughs> and annual galas. You know, you get a handful of, handful of mid-60s, seven-year-old men hanging out together, that all talking about what it takes to climb 514. Yeah. They'd probably have to have an ambulance there in case anyone has a stroke or a heart attack or something. Just in case. Yeah, in case you guys party a little too hard and somebody, yeah. Yeah, somebody falls down on the dance floor, breaks a hip. You're exactly. Like, oh, man. No, that's not good. <laughs> no, wait, it is good. You eat an artificial one. It's great. Yeah. Man, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, Bill, you have seen a lot in climbing. Like you've seen it change and evolve uh, in in those forty five years. You were able to participate in sort of birth of of American sport climbing at Smith. You contributed the Red River Gorge, and you've seen a lot of strong people. And you've also seen a lot of people trying to get strong. And how do you define that term? strength or strong like and and do we misuse it uh well i think what's interesting to me is that in climbing there seems to be a real bias in favor of strength um where i think a lot of people identify being a good climber in large measure with being a strong climber and it's just kind of curious there seems to be some oddity there um one of the ways in which this manifests itself is look the people in my generation who defined the rules a thousand years ago is like, there's kind of two main rules. One is for free climbing. Uh, you can use only what the rock provides you. So you can't pull up on the rope and you can't pull on quick draws and you can't hang around and things like that. But the other rule is you can use all that the rock provides you. So all the features are usable. And so if there's a crack on a given section of the rock and you can use a technical hand jam or fist jam, that's allowed. Um, if there's some sort of really technical drop knee, you can do that. If there's a heel hook, you're allowed to do that. Um, or if you're in a corner, you can you know, get an arm bar. All of this is allowed. And kind of what it means to be a technically proficient climber is that you have all the different skills and all the different techniques where you can use all these different features using your body in various ways. And what I find fascinating is that there's one sort of very bizarre exception to this, right? And there's one part of the anatomy that gets denigrated and downplayed and sort of poo-pooed, and that's that's the knee. So you can put everything against the rock, but somehow when it comes to using knee bars and using knee scums, um, a lot of people denigrate that. I just recently read an essay where knee barring, people were quoted as characterizing knee barring as um, sleazy, a sleazy style of climbing. And I just find that really, really odd and, and sort of arbitrary and strange. And things get even weirder when you ask people, now, why is this? Why do you why do you denigrate knee barring? What's distinctive about knee barring? And what's bizarre is what they then say is something to the effect of quite often something to the effect of, well, knee barring allows you to get up the route easier. It allows you to climb the route easier. It makes it easier to climb the route. 
<laughs> and of course, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, stop and think about that for a minute, right? And you mean that having really strong fingers doesn't make it easier to climb the route or using heel hooks or really good footwork, that doesn't make it easier to climb the route. All these things make it easier to climb the route. That's why they're called assets. And so it just seems kind of odd that there is this prejudice in climbing against knee barring. <laughs> One area where you can see this happening is quite often you'll maybe get some climber who's pretty strong to do a, a, a difficult sequence. And then later, another climber will come along and figure out a way to do the same sequence using some sort of technical knee bar, knee scum, or something like that. And the general response is, oh, well, now we have to downrate it, you know, because doing it that way, that, that, that's, you have to downrate it. If you're going to do it that way, you don't, you don't get the 14A, you get a 13C or something like that. But how come things never go the opposite way, right? How come it's never the case that you'll get a technically sophisticated climber do a certain sequence in a really technically demanding way using maybe some sort of drop knee or knee scum or knee bar or something like that? And then another climber comes along who's much stronger and just pulls through that section. How come we don't say, oh, you know, we're going to have to downrate that now because it turns out you don't have to be so technically sophisticated to do that sequence. You can just be dumb and strong and just pull through that. How, how can we never talk that way? So it just seems to me there's this odd bias in climbing where there is a sort of attitude that being stronger is what really counts. And uh, all these technical skills that people have, well, those are those are really kind of ways of cheating. They're kind of, as I said, they're sort of sleazy ways of getting up a route. So it just strikes me as very odd. Well, aren't grading systems basically for the physical difficulty of the route? Well, I mean, is, isn't the whole system of grading built around strength and not technique? I don't think it should be. It may be, but I, that's precisely that's an expression of the bias I'm talking about. Right. I mean, for example, well, but, watch, but is oh, it is it bias if the system is just built that way? It's like from the ground up. It's like that's just how we've always graded things. Uh, yeah, I don't think you would do that in gymnastics, for example, or other sports. If you have, for example, it turns out there's a lot of technique involved in doing an iron cross. Right. And so you can imagine there being two different ways of doing an iron cross. You can do it just by raw strength and you can do it by using a lot of technique. Suppose the judges could make a distinction. They can tell the difference. It seems to me it'd be very odd in judging that iron cross to down rate the gymnast who uses more technique than strength. That'd be very bizarre, it seems to me. I think talking about this with Doyle last night, we were talking, Mike Doyle and I, and he did say that the way you evaluate often the difficulty of the climb is through the amount of effort involved. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with him on that point, but what I'm gonna balk at is the idea that the only sort of effort that matters is physical exertion. See, I think that the effort involved quite often can be effort focused upon something doing something really technically demanding really but technically how, difficult. Do you, how do you quantify that kind of effort though i mean having to focus really hard on how exactly you place your toe on a very small foothold it's just hard to measure yeah. that as opposed to how pumped you are you know versus how hard you're pulling i agree it's perhaps difficult to measure but nevertheless i think it's a legitimate way in which a climb can be demanding i mean like watching you and jonathan for example up at the clear light cave right i'll watch I'll watch Jonathan go through a sequence, and, and don't get me wrong, Jonathan's an incredibly technically talented climber, but he's also quite a bit stronger than you. And so he'll just pull through that sequence, right? And then I'll watch you on that sequence, and you'll be using what I view as very technically demanding knee scums and knee bars and things like that. And, and you're using your knees in a way that I suspect maybe Jonathan could not because it's so technically sophisticated the way you do that. Now, what the oddity that I'm describing is people will watch Jonathan do that and then they'll watch you do it and they're like, oh, it's too bad Alex has to cheat his way through that section. It's such a shame. 
Uh, I think they don't quite say that, but I mean, <laughs> but it is what that is. That, that is, is that the point. That is the point. And I'm like, well, no. I mean, it seems to me Jonathan's doing it the strength demanding way, and Alex is doing it the technique demanding way. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. But so how about this that, uh, that I think most climbers would prefer to climb in the strength demanding way? You know, like I definitely would climb like Jonathan if I could, but I can't. So I'll resort to all kinds of weird shenanigans and tricks and techniques and like play with different See, ideas. You use the phrase shenanigans already. I'm like, gonna, I'm going to say, well, why, why is that a shenanigan? And moreover, well, because any anytime you're flipping around and putting your feet onto like random crossels that no one's ever touched before, you know, you're doing some shenanigans. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the route that I'm trying in the clear light that Jonathan just did the first ascent of. Yeah. And I just can't really hold the holds. And so I've tried all kinds of things where I flip the other direction. I try putting my feet on this other part of the wall, but things are breaking and there are things crossing. It's like, you know, it's shenanigans because I'm basically trying all kinds of crazy ideas. And, you know, you never know. One of those crazy ideas might wind up being quite a bit easier and I might sort of unlock a, a simpler way to climb the route. But realistically, if I was able to hold on to the small holds the way he did, I would prefer to climb it the way he did. But I just can't. So I'm sort of willing to look for other options. Fair enough. But I think, for example, in my case, I used to wrestle in high school. So I like this idea of using all parts of your body and and sort of grappling with the rock and using your knees and everything like that and heels and all that. Um, What you call shenanigans, I just think is is a matter of being a technically skilled, technically proficient climber. Um, You call it artistry. I call it shenanigans. You call it art. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that to some degree, this attitude that you see, I mean, there was recently this meme going around where like, oh, if you're a professional climber and you did a hard climb and you used a knee bar, you really should tell people that. I'm like, well, why isn't there a meme going around that says, if you're a professional climber and you did this hard climb and you can do a one-arm pull-up on a 10-millimeter edge, you should let people know that because that's really going to give you an advantage. Um, it just, it seems to me... It, isn't, that isn't that actually partially exactly because... The biases. No, but the assumption is that if you're a professional climber, you're supposed to be able to do a one arm on a 10 millimeter edge. You know, so it's like, like but I want to give credit of... to the professional climber who actually is maybe not quite as strong as the other climbers, but it's just incredibly technically sophisticated. This is how we do things in almost all sports. And we recognize that, again, as I point out, there are these different assets. And it seems to me that that it's much more in the spirit of climbing to recognize that people have 
different body types and different body sizes. And everybody gets to figure out their own way to get from point A to point B. They get to figure out the sequence that works best for them. And this idea that, no, you know, I, I call them beta blockers. It's like, no, you have to use the beta that I came up with. That's, that's the only way to do it. And any of these other shenanigans, as you put it, is in some way illegitimate. That seems to me to go against the spirit of climbing where, where no, you get, to, you get to be crafty and you get to be intelligent and you get to try to figure out all these different sorts of things. To me, that's a lot of the fun. Yeah, I mean, I think the point is to be crafty, intelligent, figure out the best way. But then if you find an easier way to climb something, a physically easier way, then you just have to be straightforward about what you did and give it a personal grade of, you know, that's appropriate to whatever you did. And I mean, I, I've personally done that quite a bit in the clear light because I've been using all kinds of weird trickery that people didn't use on the first ascents. But then I just call the root whatever I think it was for me and don't really stress whatever the given grade was or what other people have said it is. I'm like, well, here's what I did and here's how hard I think it is. And that's just like so, a point of data that the- So are you downgrading everything? He is, yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it really pisses me off. But the thing is, it's not downgrading because I'm not I'm not downgrading what other people did. I mean, I'm I'm acknowledging the fact that I can't do what they did, but so I'm doing it differently. But don't you think you're, you're in some ways failing to give yourself an adequate degree of credit for the really technical sophistication of what you're doing? It's true you're you're not doing it as as strength demanding but i guarantee you some of those knee bars you use 99% if even professional climbers can't use them and so i don't think you should be taking that away from from what you're doing though to be fair i would prefer not to use them either you know i mean i think that's ultimately <laughs> why people don't why people poo poo on knee barring so much is that it is just super annoying to put on the pads and duct tape the pads on cuz to sure. use the really sophisticated knee bars you have to tape the pads on you're like wasting a bunch of plastic it's all like a bit of an annoyance. It takes a long time to get ready for the route. And then it hurts your legs. I mean, it does legitimately hurt your knees quite a lot. And you cut yourself all the time. Yeah. And it's also a lot of ankle strength involved too. Let's face it. I mean, it's not like it's completely independent of strength when you're using a technical knee bar. You're using a lot of your calf muscles and a lot of your ankles as well. So yeah, but it's, it is, I do have to say it's not like, I under, like, I see Alex's point where he's like, he's not looking for the compliment of being like, damn, you got strong ankles. He wants to hear, <laughs> you know, it's like no, no climbers like, man, you got the strongest angle. Like it's, it's all about like that other kind of strength that we do put an emphasis on. I think maybe, I think maybe part of it though is because having really strong ankles might help you for very particular types of climbs, but having strong fingers helps you for every type of climb. That's and true. so I think that's one of the reasons that we, we value finger strength in the sport is that if you have strong fingers, it'll basically help you on anything in climbing. Whereas the incredibly high level of technique, the trickiness, the you know the, the shenanigans around e-barring, all that, they can get you up certain routes, but ultimately you know they won't get you up every route. No, I mean, if I could trade out different sorts of assets, I would always want to be stronger. That's, that's yeah. always much better. But <laughs> and, that, and particularly in your fingers. Exactly. Like it's all finger strength. Yes, without a doubt, that would be great because nothing's ever felt easier than it felt when I was really strong. So yeah. yes, that's a good thing. <laughs> But again, I don't want to take anything away from these other assets that people use. I, I think it's analogous to off-width climbing. I think that's some of the most technically demanding climbing that there is. I, I think what people do in these really difficult off-widths is just absolutely amazing. And really? Have, be, have you ever climbed a difficult off-width? It no, doesn't I've feel amazing. It, feel, it, it feels horrible. Incredible. Like it's not, it doesn't feel technical. It feels stupid. You're like, why am I out here like digging technique, a ditch? Then you like can't even get off the ground. Exactly. Like, it's like yeah. someone being like, well, I don't know how to 
arm bar. So I'm just going to try to lie back the whole thing. Like you see those yes. people every time you go to the desert. And, and Alex like, is saying, well, and just because you had a lie back the whole thing doesn't mean you get to call it. Yeah, this is what Alex is saying. Is Alex saying it's 510. I'd yeah. much rather lie back the entire off width if I could. And that's a better way to climb the off width than these, you know, fist stacks and stepping your knees, your, your well, ankles up inside the crack. Honestly, if, if you were infinitely strong and you could, it is nicer to lie back and off with. You know what I mean? Like, like if you have if you have like a number four crack in a corner, it's way nicer to lie back the whole thing at like mid five ten than it is to off with it at probably also low five ten, but just grueling and you know calorically very demanding. Whereas you know lie back and you're like, oh, my forearms got mildly pumped, but the rest of my body is unscraped and you know basically fine. <laughs> I think like that's unscathed. why most people second the Harding slot because they're like, well, I'm not going to get yeah. in there if I don't need to get in there. Right. Have, exactly. is that, have, has anyone actually on this on this call, has anyone actually done that? Because I've always kind of thought about it and been like, there is no way I'm going on the no. outside of that thing. It seems so scary to like go out to the outside and lie back when you could just squeeze up a five, six slot in the middle. I'm like, who would ever go on the outside? <laughs> yeah. It seems terrifying. But I don't know. Though, to be fair, I haven't been up there with a rope in a really long time. <laughs> so it seems particularly scary when yeah. you think about live yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Bill, you were sort of suggesting, like, when people look at the valuation of technique, right, is that maybe what they don't see is that it's a tip of an iceberg situation. This technique comes from time. It comes from experience. It comes from there. And I was even explaining to them, I don't know how it came up this morning, but I was talking to my two little boys. Becca was doing some exercise where she was like uh, standing on one foot with her other leg raised out in front and then lowering all the way down to her toes and then back up, um, you know, while balancing on one leg. And I thought about like, oh, and they're asking like, what would you ever use that for? I'm like, well, in climbing, like a lot of times, like you have to hand foot match and those are muscles that are like super key. And I was thinking back, every grade that I made a jump on, um, and I'm not as good as climbers as, as as you all are, but like every J, every every new grade sort of seemed to have its own set of language for the set of things that you were tasked with or moves that you had to learn, and and I felt like you started to see those over and over again in the 512, in the 513 range, and I'm sure that the same is true in the 514 range, um, is that there sort of seemed to be some repetition to it, and I think that that's maybe what people are missing when they see all those knee bars is that that actually took you, you were adapting yeah. your own skill set and your own body to the challenges that were well, served at you, right? I mean, and I, I mean, think that be, that's it. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, to be honest, I myself was a beta blocker. and I was just talking to Heather Widener and she reminded me of a time when I was giving her a hard time for using knee bars. So I've been guilty of this myself because I used to be pretty strong. And I think what's happened is that I've, as I've gotten older, I've gotten weaker and I need to become more crafty. <laughs> so <laughs> I've come to sort of appreciate, um, oh, okay, maybe these other techniques are, are, are something we should be not disparaging quite so much. But yeah, definitely. I just think that, it, and I've also really always enjoyed the process of trying to figure out how to get through a given section. And the more in which you can be clever and um, tricky as it is, and I wouldn't say sleazy, but tricky, um, quite often that can be really rewarding to sort of figure out and un unlock a sequence like that. It's actually can be really fun. I think also part of it is just the nature of, of where I've been climbing a lot lately. If you climb in rifle or if you climb up at the clear light clave, it's usually this overhanging limestone that's very blocky. And so of course it lends itself much more to these types of styles of climbing. Part of what also goes on is that it is the case that on some routes, um, there are really non-technical knee bars that 
really do make the climb much easier. There's no question. Objectively, you don't have to have any technical skill to use them. You just slam in the knee bar and you automatically get a no hands rest. So in those cases, I understand the, the argument for downgrading, but there it seems to me the error is on the first ascensionist for just missing a really obvious hold on the route, right? I mean, you know, you're trying to do a route, you need to find all the holds and use all the, all the things that the rod gives you. That's what it means to be technically proficient. So if the first ascensionist just missed a huge obvious knee bar, that's, that's on them. Um, somebody was just telling me that there's a double no hands knee bar rest on Omaha Beach, this route I put up back in the 20 years ago or whatever. And, um, and my attitude is, oh, that, good for them. That was dumb of me to miss that somehow. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't catch that. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Can you, can you uh, just just so we can hear it, tell us your, your analogy for recovery as you get older? Do you know, you know what I'm talking about with, uh, you know, you have your janitor? Oh, I've heard right. you say this yes. a couple times and yeah. I, I freaking love it and I think so, about it all the time now. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, uh, the, the joke I tell is that um, if you think about your body's recovery system and repair system, when you're training and you're climbing, you know, your body has to recover. And one way you can have a kind of like visualization of, well, there's a repair team inside your body, right? And so the younger people in their 20s and 30s have these like five or six dudes who are just super, super motivated. It's like, okay, we're going to fix these tendons. We're going to fix these muscles. We're going to get it going. And, you know, these kids recover overnight practically. Whereas inside of my body, I've got this old dude who sits behind the desk with Sports Illustrated magazine, his feet up on the desk, and he's thinking of retiring. He's maybe got a bottle of scotch in the bottom drawer. And he's like, yeah, I'll get to those tendons in a couple of days. I don't, I don't need to get out that right now. He's maybe watching, he's watching the Super Bowl on, his, on a TV on his desk or something like that. I'll, I'll get around to repairing that tissue sometime in the future. But yeah, I'll, I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> so, so that's the repair team that I have inside my body. And uh, yeah, I definitely notice it. I think... What I tell people is that it basically, increasingly, uh, one day off feels like second day on, and two days off feels like one day off used to feel like, and three days off feels like maybe one and a half, two days off used to feel like. So everything just has to be stretched out more in terms of recovery and rest. 
Yeah, I think about that all the time. I think the the one sad janitor just kicking the bucket down the, yeah. down the hallway, being like, "Nah, you know, we're 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 doing it just nice and slowly." I mean, I do think the one thing that I that I still stand by. I mean, I I use this this analogy. I've used it in some other things. I have this thing called the pain box, basically. And I think I told Alex about it once and uh, maybe Lisa too. That's another too. one I, I remember well. Yeah, yeah so uh, the, the imagery is imagine a, a rectangular box and you should just accept the amount of pain in your life. It's, you know, a lot of things are just like, well, you can get rid of all the hardship in your life, five-minute abs, you know, it's, it's, it's like, well, the Stoic philosophy is just accept what's there. But what, one thing you can do is you can engage in what I call pain reallocation. And so pain reallocation means that there's different kinds of suffering in your life. There's a kind of suffering that's associated with hard work and sacrifice and diet and all those sorts of things, the things you think you should be doing. And then there's a kind of suffering that's maybe more psychological that's associated with failure and not achieving your goals and disappointment. And what I kind of figured out is you can imagine these being on opposite sides. So maybe the failure kind of suffering is on the right side of the box and the hard work suffering is on the left side of the box. And then there's a bar separating the two. And with most people, they want less of the quantity of what's on the right side. They want less quantity of the frustration and, and disappointment suffering. And so you can see that you can indeed reduce that quantity but by moving this middle bar to the right. But the only way that works geometrically is if you substantially increase the quantity of the other kind of suffering, the suffering associated with hard work and sacrifice and so on. And to me, that's just insofar as I have a training philosophy has always been sort of at the heart of my training philosophy. That's why I sometimes say more is more um, because I am always trying to reduce the amount of the frustration and disappointment suffering. And the, what I've discovered is, and it's just a keeping with the laws of geometry um, that can happen only if you increase the quantity of the um, sort of sacrifice, hard work, dedication, suffering. This is why it's easy to see why not many people subscribe to your training techniques, though. Because <laughs> when you have you have five minute abs on offer, or you have Bill's train Bill's pain box, you're kind of like, you know, I think I'll try the five minute abs and just see if it works. Let's just, let's just try it out and see. Yeah. yeah. Versus the nine hour Bill Ramsey program. Right. right. Yeah. When Professor Bill tells you that you have a fixed amount of pain in your life and all you can do is change the partition from the pain of sucking to the pain of training, you're like, you know, that actually doesn't I'm, really, I'm doesn't really sell other, sucking. Yeah. I'm going to go out yeah. this other workout instead. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. But it's a hard truth, I think, and it's a hard truth that I've discovered. And I, if you ask me why am I still able to climb fairly hard at my age, it's because I buy into that hard truth. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, and I think I know Alex's answer, but say you, you know, like every every climber, utilizes technique every time climber use, utilizes power and it's you know it's the sort of dance between those two things that provide our limit but if you could get to the same level but you could do it with technique or you could get to the same level with power would you which would you pick i'm not sure i i i'm kind of i could go either way i think um are you kidding the thing is, technique just doesn't get you up certain things. I mean, I can name half a dozen different problems around the world that technique just can't get you up, like boulder no, problems I, especially, but roots as well. I would say in well. terms of general assets, you're better off all around as a climber to be strong. There's no question about that as a general asset. But if you're talking about on this particular section of rock, do it the Jonathan Segris way or do it the Alex Honnold way, I'm not 100% sure that I would prefer the Jonathan Segris way as opposed to the Alex Honnold way. Because I think that using that craftiness and using all parts of your body is really fun and interesting. Yeah, the, the bummer is that when you use all the craftiness, then you have to call it, you know, two grades easier than but the first ascensionist did. You're just expressing you're the like, bias I'm talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe it's just so innate. I just can't get past that bias. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's interesting because climbing inherently is a skill sport. 
Like you can't, if you just take a CrossFitter and you put them in a climbing gym, they are not going to succeed compared to a person that might be way less fit, way less strong than they are. So I think that is one of the things that I find missing from this conversation is that ultimately actually technique is far more important than than strength in climbing because you actually have to have the skill to rock climb in order to be able to perform. Yeah, actually a good example of what you're saying is uh, watching a little kid climb versus an adult. You know, it's like you can have a little kid that who's climbed their whole life move really well on rock and even though they only have a tiny fraction of the strength of an adult, it's like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not a CrossFitter, but you're like, if you know how to climb, like that's kind of the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just thinking of just thinking of like little kids in the gym. You're like, you know, you don't have to be that strong to be a good climber. Because by any, by any measure of strength, like little kids are, are very, very weak, you know, but it's like, but yeah, they can just dangle on, dangle on little holds. Well, and there are plenty of people I can think of too, off the top of my head that are incredibly strong and they're great rock climbers, but they're not, they don't climb as hard as other people that aren't as strong as them because those people have developed the technical side of their climbing in a way that has allowed for them to climb harder grades. Yeah, I always look at those people and I'm like, if I had their strength, I could literally climb anything on earth. You know, cause I mean, there are definitely a lot of people like that where I'm like, if I just had even a fraction of that strength, I could do anything. You know, it's like, I could definitely climb the hardest grades on earth. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but sadly, I just don't have that strength. But I also wonder if there's just like a, a grade almost at which like you just need strength. Cause I feel like as someone that doesn't climb nearly as hard as you guys, it's like, I don't feel like I've ever gotten something or like been on a route that I couldn't just, if I had better technique, I'd probably be able to do it. Like, I don't feel like I'm usually limited by, I guess like if I was just so strong, I'd be able to have shitty technique, you know? But like, I wonder if there's like a threshold of like root difficulty, you know, cause like you don't even knee bar on like moderate roots, right? And so I'm like, oh, I just wonder but if there's could. a spot. You could. Yeah, you yeah. could. Just that nobody, and actually it'd be easier to knee bar on moderate roots because they're bigger features, but nobody needs to, so nobody does. But I mean, that's the thing, that's the whole thing with this conversation with knee barring is it only really starts to become an issue at the higher grades because nobody's going to bother at like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, because it's too annoying. It hurts your leg too much. You're like, you know what? I'm just not going to, not going to deal with that. Like if you saw somebody with two pads taped on to like try to send their 10C project, you would just feel like slightly sad for them. <laughs> You'd be like, that is a waste of effort. Like that sucks. You know, I would be even applauding though... them. It's like, oh my God, you're learning good technique. Good for you. Yeah. yeah right. But like, would we feel Start like, oh, they should just yeah. get stronger or should we be like, oh, they should just use their feet better? Because it feels like yeah, exactly. you could pretty much just use your feet better. I feel like, I don't know. Like, I feel like you don't have to even train ever to like climb at least five 12? I don't know. Yeah. Like, it feels like you just don't need to, like, be that strong. You don't need to do anything other than just go rock climbing to, like, get pretty good. Yeah. Like, I, I, I kind of agree that probably almost anybody could just climb all the time and get to low 513-ish or sort of, you know, upper 512 by just climbing and, and learning good technique. Yeah. And I do think that is an area where people do appreciate that. They think, oh, well, you can tell the difference between uh, really just somebody who knows how to move with the rock efficiently and not waste energy and um, knows how to backstep and stuff like that. They just move really, really nicely and smoothly compared to somebody who's really strong, but is thrashing about. So I guess, I guess when I say the climbers poo-poo technique, it's very special kinds of techniques that they poo-poo. And generally speaking, I do think most people recognize the need for being uh, technically proficient in just the ordinary sense of moving over the rock. Uh, Bill, I was thinking back about examples of where 
maybe their bias was more towards technique at certain certain times in the sport. And um, I don't know if that's the case, but I remember when Chris Sharma came onto the scene and he went on this like crazy three week mm-hmm. road trip and destroyed Rampage, the West Coast. Baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rampage. Yeah, and and um, you know the the you would see in climbing magazine or whatever they'd be like, well, when he actually learned some technique or you know like basically there was an older generation that was commenting on it of like. He's not that good. He's just a phenom. He's just like a mutant. It's interesting. No, I don't know about that because I actually remember a slightly different conversation from at least a few people where the, where I was inclined to say, yeah, he's just really strong. And boy, when he's going to need that technique, he's going he's, he's gonna to get it. I, you know, And that's exactly what happened. But at that time, he didn't need super good footwork. But I remember at the time there was a conversation that was more like, oh, this is the new way to climb. You just you just dyno between everything and you just kind of campus everything. And that's the new style. And he's showing us the way to actually climb properly. You don't worry about all these little technical skills and everything. And I thought, no, no, he's going to he's going to develop really, really, really good footwork, which he did um, when he needs to. And it's just that these climbs are so easy for him right now. He doesn't really need it. And he just flies up things and his feet are sketching off of things. And he's not even bothering to put his foot on stuff because he doesn't need to. Yeah, but the, uh, if you watch footage of Chris Sharman Rampage, he's canvassing everything. When you then watch footage of him climbing 15B and 15C, like exactly. the Dura, he's now suddenly doing really intricate drop and he's like really technical footwork. You're sort of like, well, you know, when it gets hard enough, you suddenly start doing whatever you need to stay on the wall. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So, yeah. Actually, it, it reminds me of, uh, uh, has anyone seen Happy Gilmore with, uh, ba- you know, basically yeah, towards the end of the film yeah. when he's suddenly like, uh, when he's like, uh-oh, look who learned how to putt. You know, it's like, basically like when, when he needs it, it's like he picks up a short game and you're sort of like, you know, I mean, that is the thing with, with technique is that, and I think this is one of the reasons that climbers value strength so much more than technique is that, well, basically technique is something that you can kind of pick up when you need it. Strength is really a little bit more innate or it takes a very, very long time to develop, but you can't just learn a new thing and, and suddenly, you know, the, the thing with technique is that like with a little bit of practice, a little bit of learning, you can, you can pick it up and it's suddenly fine. But strength just isn't isn't there. I mean, strength requires that. either years of effort or, you know, a gift like Chris Sharma. I think being technically proficient actually does take a long time to develop that ability. And I think there are some people that are just genetically innately really strong. And it, they do like a, a few weeks of fingerboarding and bam, they're suddenly really, really, really strong. So I'm not sure about that. It seems that a lot of the advanced techniques really take effort. I mean, I think... To to learn to learn great technique all the way around, yeah, it might take years of effort. But to learn the technique required for a specific route or a specific maneuver, where you're like, oh, there's this tricky little heel toe cam where you can like slot your toe into a box and it'll hold you in for these two moves. Like at a at a more specific route level, you can kind of learn what you need to within a few tries on a route, typically. Mm-hmm. Especially if somebody down below, like your belayer, is yelling up like, put the foot in sideways and twist <laughs> it. And you're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. You know, then and I think that's why people don't value technique as much, because like if someone can just yell at you until you figure it out, you're like, well, that's not quite as cool as doing a one arm on a small edge, you know? I think I part know. of it is just that being strong is cool and that like hangboarding is cooler than being like, oh, I'm just going to go do my little footwork drills or whatever. You know, like I feel like just being, I wonder if part of it is just that like having big biceps and like being strong and that we like kind of regularly use the word strong to mean good. Like when yeah, we talk about the strongest exactly right. climbers in the world. We really just mean the best climbers in the world. Exactly. And like it, until you're having a conversation like this where you're trying to break it down, it's like usually we just think that strong is good. 
I mean, it's, it's actually interesting if you guys have ever seen any of the like interviews with Adam Andre when he talks about uh, bouldering World Cups and things like that, hmm. where he says that a lot of the bouldering World Cup problems are more like V9 or V10, but they're just really devious and tricky mm-hmm. and technical. Mm-hmm. And then he said the straightforward power ones are more like V12, V13, but you know everyone's going to do them basically. And they're like, a little less fun to watch. Yeah, totally. It's like someone campusing on pinches. You're like, wow, that's impressive. That's cool. But you don't get to see the whole spectrum of them figuring it out, them working on it, them solving an interesting puzzle. You know, yeah. you just see them like try hard and fall off. Do you guys have a, I'm curious, like, like talking about this, because I think so much of it is like, it's pretty subjective how we assign like grace or beauty or like watching someone climb. Do you have a, do each of you have a favorite climber to watch? Hmm. That's interesting. I would say no. In my case, I the people at the top end—they're all just beautiful and they're amazing, and I and I'm just kind of always blown away by them. I just find them so, so intriguing, and especially the ones that are really good at problem solving on the fly. It is fun watching. There are some climbers it seems I watch who are just refuse to give up, like what Alex was saying about Sharma, and that is that is enthralling to see that. Just they're trying so hard all the time, and it's just so neat and and so impressive and inspiring. I think I actually find that more inspiring because that's something I feel like, well, I can do that. Whereas if I watch a really strong climber, I'm like, well, that doesn't, I don't even know what, I can't even make sense of what that's, what that is. Um, and so I, that, that's nice, but it has nothing to do with me, it seems, with that kind of strength. But when I watch somebody trying really hard, I'm like, well, I, that's inspiring. And that, that, that motivates me to try harder as well when I'm climbing. Yeah, I think if I had to choose a climber whose physical climbing has most inspired me by watching it, I think I would maybe choose Chris Sharma just because over the years there have been so many iconic films of him trying his, his absolute limit and like fighting and it's just so impressive to watch. I mean, I've been more inspired by the things that other climbers have done like Tommy or, you know, Dean Potter, or like John Backer, you know, it's like those types of climbers accomplishments mean a lot more to me. But I think physically watching somebody climb, you watch Chris Sharma and you're just like, man, I want to do that. Like I want to mm-hmm. climb like him because that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Whereas actually, I think somebody like Adam Moderate, who's, you know, probably technically a better climber and a stronger climber and basically just a better climber all the way around than Chris. But you watch him climb and you're just it doesn't quite have the same like joy and heart to it, even though, I mean, he obviously has like a ton of heart, but it's just not quite, you know, you watch it and you're like, oh, that, that almost looks like looks like stressful in a way. You know, it's like you watch Chris climb and you're like, that looks joyous. Like out of all the people we've talked to, I would hazard a guess that you've had the longest career while also maintaining the greatest level of strength or technique, whatever we want to call it right now. And like, I think a lot of people want to emulate that or would hope to have a, a climbing career like the one you've had. And, you know, what is there advice you have or, or tips like looking back through the whole thing? People ask me what I do, and then when I tell them, they get really upset, and they're like, that seems really dumb. <laughs> so it's like my sort of approach. I think everybody, like many of the coaches, would say this is completely wrongheaded, and it's really the wrong approach. But, uh, I mean, I think one thing that actually helped me to have some degree of longevity is I did take some time off while I was getting my doctorate and uh, sort of getting tenure at Notre Dame. And I suspect that sort of having that little gap in my career probably gave me a little more longevity. But a good deal of it is just, it's become such an incorporated part of my life, including the training, that I really, anytime I've had to take a step away from it, I really feel kind of a little bit lost. And um, like when I had my hip replaced, it's kind of like, ah, it's just, I was really trying to get right back into climbing as soon as possible and spread training as soon as possible. But 
Yeah, I I feel like a lot of it is I've just frankly been really, really lucky. Um, I, I have been very fortunate to really avoid major injuries. Um, I really don't have finger injuries. I think a part of it is that I'm, I'm kind of obsessive compulsive about things like warming up and stretching and really easing into the day. And I also go pretty hard when I train. And so I probably am a little stronger than the level that I climb at. I'm, I'm probably climbed at a little lower level than I'm actually capable of in terms of just my raw strength, in terms of uh, my training. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the main thing is just you know, enjoy every moment of it. It's, I, I just feel incredibly lucky and really fortunate that I'm still kind of in the game. I can go climb at a cliff like the Clear Light Cave and Alex and Jonathan are up there. And it's, it's just, it's, 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 I just feel really lucky basically. And, um, but a lot of it is just not getting overly frustrated, recognizing that there's going to be things that are not going to go your way. You're going to, it's going to take longer to recover. There are going to be little minor nagging hurts and pains and everything. And that's just part of the process and just accepting that is a lot of um, the kind of having some degree of longevity and some degree of resilience. I, I tend to think maybe some climbers are overly uh, respectful of their injuries. I, I tend to sort of, I think once I get turned to be 50, I was like, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of little tweaks and that's just going to be part of the game and you just have to go with that. And so I tend to have these little pains and aches and everything and I just ignore them and they eventually go away. So I've been really lucky that way. Um, I think sometimes people, oh, I've got this finger that feels odd, I'm going to take five weeks off. And well, you know, you're never going to have a time when things aren't, there isn't something that's hurting. So trying to be a little more resilient, I think is also helpful as well. But yeah, I just been, I think a lot of it, frankly, is just luck. Thanks, Bill, for joining us. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was produced and edited by Marco Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitz Cahal. Additional editing and mixing by Evan Phillips. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>